You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. Hi, and welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, and I'm your host, Peter Defty, with co-host Naomi Land. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Peter. How are and you? We've got great. I'm a bit excited. We've got that naughty nutritionist today. <laughs> oh, well, well, well. <laughs> so watch out. So uh, yeah, well, I'm watching out too because I like the I like the tone of your voice because it sounds a little naughty too. And since I'm the <laughs> I'm the single guy, I just need to remind you girls that French uh, menage a trois is French for in your dreams. Especially when you're in Australia and, and Kayla's in New Mexico and I'm here in California. So we'll just have to do a good job of getting some good information. And today we have, um, yeah, the naughty nutritionist Kayla Daniel back on for a little conversation about things that are near and dear to a lot of athletes' hearts, especially if they've been a high-carb athlete for a long time, and that is the subject of thyroid health and hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism and iodine and all these little things. So um, I'm going to really kind of let Kayla start it off and then Naomi, you should jump in because I think you have a very special personal interest in this. So ladies. Well, I think the theme of thyroid is very, very important because at least 13 million people in the United States have thyroid problems. Those are the ones who are diagnosed, but some people feel it's substantially underdiagnosed and it could be as many as 60 million. So that's a lot of thyroid disease. And of course with hypothyroidism, we think of symptoms like fatigue, malaise, lethargy, uh, depression, uh, loss of libido. All of those are, are, oh, are we, thyroid. We, we can't related. lose that, can we? <laughs> no. <laughs> but of course it's a very complex issue uh, besides issues of, of proper diagnosis there's complications with the adrenal glands and gluten sensitivity and all sorts of topics so it's it's a very complex multi-layered problem so we got a big rabbit hole to go down today don't we we do okay. so let's just break it down to start off with, why um, why do people get these types of symptoms? Well, some people think that there's not more thyroid disease, that it's not on the rise, and that people are just diagnosing it better today. But I really do think it is on the rise and has been for quite a while. For example, thyroid cancer, we have statistics on that doubling since 1990. So that that's huge and that's scary. But more commonly, of course, hypothyroidism, low thyroid, and then Hashimoto's, the autoimmune form of low thyroid and Graves' disease. And thyroid, thyroid um, swings back and forth. Um, so many complications. Now, is, is, is lupus part of that whole triad, too? Is the thyroid pretty involved with lupus, too? Lupus is one of the autoimmune disorders, and they are all on the rise, and that's all linked to, to gluten sensitivity. So, yeah, they're, they're all related. Okay, well, um, so 
what are your thoughts on on this as far as athletes and all that? Because we see a lot of uh, what I would term as adrenal stress. I wouldn't call it adrenal fatigue. And a lot of it is due to, uh, you know, thyroid issues. And, and much of this is done is, you know, what I, I consider, and this is just my opinion, is due to that conventional wisdom that you need to eat a ton of carbohydrates to fuel exercise. Well, that's, that's a very good point because people who are eating a ton of carbohydrates, uh, besides the carbohydrate issue, they may very well be eating a whole lot of uh, gluten-containing grains, you know, the pastas, the crackers, pizzas, on and on. And if you've got the autoimmune form of thyroid disease, that's going to be a huge problem. And if you've got lupus or multiple sclerosis or any of the other autoimmune problems, Gluten sensitivity is extremely likely to be part of that whole problem. Gluten sensitivity is huge for autoimmune uh, thyroid diseases and also any other autoimmune disorders. And if you've got an autoimmune disorder, it's extremely likely that you've got gluten sensitivity. Now, the testing for that is somewhat expensive and a lot of doctors don't do it, certainly don't do it routinely. But it becomes very important because knowing that you cannot tolerate gluten is very motivating in terms of really uh, cleaning up your diet because even a molecule of it is a problem for sensitive individuals. So, so many people think, well, I don't eat much wheat. Uh, it's an occasional thing. The problem with gluten sensitivity is it's pretty much all or nothing. <laughs> So it's something it's very good to get a proper diagnosis. So I work with Alcat Labs, some doctors work with Cyrex, and definitely something to consider if you've been health challenged. Yeah, if you have a gluten insensitivity, correct? Exactly. So that whole business of being properly diagnosed and being tested properly is huge for any kind of thyroid disorder. And so many regular MDs, all they're testing for is TSH. And the range of, of values they're looking for is, is not appropriate, really. We should be looking at optimal values and not what they consider normal. Yeah, I mean, we'll, some of those... we'll get into that here in a little bit. But uh, in terms of the gluten okay. sensitivity, uh, a lot of athletes don't realize that, um, like your common gels uh, are made of, most of them are made of maltodextrin, and they can make maltodextrin out of wheat. So a lot of times that infiltrates towards cross-contamination cross -contamination from the facility. Um, so like you say, if you have a sensitivity, it, all it takes is a couple of molecules. And it's often hidden, uh, you know, as you mentioned, with some gels. I mean, that's exposure right there. And uh, many pharmaceutical drugs, there's gluten additives. Uh, you know, we can just go on and on. There's wheat where you'd never expect it. Uh, you can go to a Japanese restaurant and you might not think there'd be gluten in some sushi roll you get. But guess what? It's in there. You're getting glutened, as we say. <laughs> Yeah. So, so many ways to be careful. Yeah, the, this is interesting because we've had I've had some athletes find out about this pure by purely by, you know, trial and error. And, it, and this is where we learned about, you know, the maltodextrin um, being gluten containing. And it's it's really a function of the epithelium uh, and the biome that resides in there, because people who are tolerant of wheat and have the genetic uh, ability to um, tolerate wheat well. Um, 
can get by without it, but those who don't um, will have this problem. Now, also, I think it's important for you to context, like it goes on a spectrum. I mean, if you're sensitive as you move down that spectrum of consuming more and more and get more of the inflammatory histamine response type things, these things just tend to get worse and worse. Is that correct, Kayla? Uh, they do, and there's issues like leaky gut, of course, making things worse, and the priority always healing the gut, no matter what your other symptoms are. But there are many, many people, uh, at least 18 million Americans, who, who have gluten sensitivity, and that's a whole lot of people. So that's very different from celiac disease, which is total intolerance. But uh, many, many more people have gluten insensitivity, excuse me, gluten sensitivity or intolerance. And some of the symptoms that should alert us to the fact that that could be a problem, well, there's all the mental health, neurological issues like depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorders, things like brain fog, which of course is a thyroid symptom. Uh, any kind of autoimmune disorders, if you've been diagnosed with MS or rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, scleroderma, any of those, very important to consider very seriously the gluten sensitivity issue. Uh, if you're always getting colds and flus, if your immunity is down, that might be a clue. If you've got a lot of dental problems, uh, migraines, skin problems, hormonal imbalances, adrenal fatigue, you name it. Um, for athletes, things like muscle weakness. If it's not making sense why you've got muscle weakness, maybe gluten's part of the picture. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And of course, um, what you're finding is gluten goes right back in terms of how it impacts th the thyroid. Yeah, uh, it's not good for the thyroid at all. And so many people uh, say they're just having a beer once in a while. They're thinking, I don't eat bread, I don't eat pasta, I don't have gluten, but they're drinking beer. And there's gluten there. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's, it's ubiquitous, isn't it? Um, it really is. <laughs> so, you know, we've got this combination of something like gluten, which is, and especially the gluten today, because, you know, since the advent of the uh, Borlaug wheat, the semi-dwarf wheat, uh, the proteins uh, have changed. It's got more, I think it's got like 22 uh, RNA strands in it versus 11 for the ancient wheat. So it's, it's a much more robust uh, gluten molecule, uh, much harder for us to break down and, and, as you know, these four, it's, it's basically a foreign protein the same way snake venom or a bee sting or psychedelic mushrooms or even poisonous mushrooms are. That's right. And when I was with the Western Price Foundation for a long time, I thought that if we soaked our wheat properly and did like our ancestors did, that it would be less of a problem. And perhaps it'll be less of a problem if you start out life that way. But for most of us, that's not enough. If we've got gluten sensitivity, we have to exclude all of those. We have to exclude the kamut and the spelt and even the ancient wheat because we've already developed these sensitivities. And I'm not sure we can fix that. I'd like to believe it because, well, bread is really, really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I miss I'm, it. I'm a sucker for sourdough, but um, I agree with you. If I start eating a lot of it, my nose starts to itch and I feel inflamed and away we go to the races. So, um, yeah, I think that also um, it also has to do with the fact that we've devolved 
from our natural potential. And, and it's uh, when they study these ancient cultures, the untouched cultures, you know, that haven't been exposed to human, uh, modern human lifestyle and medicines, that their biome is actually twice as diverse as a healthy modern human biome. And so, you know, when you think about how digestion and nutrition works, especially when you're talking about foods that are not animal uh, proteins and fats, uh, most of the nutrition comes from the, the bacteria, uh, fungi, and archaea in your stomach and gut, break, actually breaking down and creating fatty acids from that, that food source. Um, so let's go back here with the thyroid and um, let's uh, kind of give a rundown of where the thyroid, why don't you give us a rundown on where the thyroid is in the scheme of things because, you know, to me it's like I'm scared of touching, playing with hormones and just letting the body come into um, natural balance but the hormones that control, that the thyroid puts out and that controls the thyroid becomes even more delicate. Um, I think it's like, we produce less than a teaspoon of TSH per year. Um, it's, so, it's, it's just that delicate. It is really delicate. You would think of it as the butterfly-shaped gland in here. And uh, makes a, it's a little gland that has a huge impact on your health, your mental health, your physical health, your energy levels, and really everything. And it's really just sad how few medical doctors are properly looking at thyroid issues with their patients and how many people really uh, need to tend to their thyroid. And uh, there's many, many natural ways we can help with that. And the first things would, would include avoiding things that have a terrible impact on your thyroid. And that would be things like um, clean up your water supply, get rid of the fluoride, get rid of the chlorine. And um, that would be a starter. And also keep in mind that if you're using tap water, municipal water, you're getting a dose of like estrogens from um, hormone replacement therapies used by women going through menopause, from birth control residue, from um, many, many people during their fertile years. And that will come through the water supply, which is pretty scary. And other drug residue too, It's there's no good from this. Yeah, no, you bring up an interesting point about the water supply, Kayla, not to get too off topic, but I think this is a very important point because one of my good friends and an athlete I coach used to work in this, this area of environmental toxicology in the water, and specifically with the water supply. And she was very frustrated because she learned that the way they test water is, is they, you know, sort of, it's sort of like politics. The, the, the lobbyists sort of spec what they're looking for and they don't go looking for other things. And so it's up to us to go looking for those other things like the um, uh, pharmaceutical estrogens and things like that, that could potentially be in the water that, that just aren't checked in a standard toxicology report. Yes, we really need to look at all those things and and find a way to be drinking good quality water without those. So the chlorine, the fluoride, um, then bromide is a huge problem. And how many people do you know who maybe are hot tubbing it and they're saying there's no chlorine in my hot tub, but guess what? There's the bromine in there. 
and all of those have a terrible effect on the thyroid. And another reason not to eat commercial bread, uh, bromide in there, and you know, just just many many sources of that. It's in some pharmaceutical drugs. You know, yet another reason not to take some of those. For example, Celexa, one of the antidepressant drugs that the drug part is bound to bromide. So, and one of the ways we can actually tell that we've got a problem with bromide is, is those little red spots on the body called cherry angiomas. The doctors say they're harmless, they don't know what causes them, but it really looks like it's bromide related. So your body's eliminating them, those little red spots. They might be pinprick size or a little larger. It's bromide coming through. Yeah, well, and the thing is, is, is when it, you know these kind of exposures um, on on the level of the whole body probably don't have the same impact that they do on the thyroid because the thyroid is so sensitive. Yeah, the bromide will interfere with iodine, and that is something that's very important to look at in terms of thyroid health. And so many people, they're looking at supplementing with, say, natural thyroid medications or some of the synthetic ones. They're thinking about all of those things, which may, may really help. Many people do need those. But they're not looking at the iodine issue. Right. So I do recommend doing the iodine loading test. It's fairly inexpensive. I recommend doing it along with the bromide test because if bromide is interfering with your thyroid receptors... Uh, what are the iodine receptors? We need to know that because it, the iodine results could look fine, but maybe the bromide is screwing up the results. Well, and, and I'm going to take this one step further with the bromide. I don't know if you're how aware you this, but but brominated flame retardants are ubiquitous in upholstery, uh, car upholstery, uh, furniture, and bedding. And actually, the uh, brominated flame retardant chemical companies do the lobby into keep them, these these products, in the foams um, for, um, uh, for, for monetary reasons because a lot of the uh, original need for a flame retardant in furniture was back in the day when people smoked. And nowadays this isn't such, a, such an issue, but yet the brominated flame retardants in conjunction with a lot of the uh, petrochemicals um, you know, the phytates and the, or the phylates and other things that are in like PVCs and things like that, they outgas over time. And, and interestingly enough, they've done some interesting studies here with the, the California Department of Toxic Substance Control where they've seen that um, bromide levels in, in um, lactating females in um, more affluent communities actually surpasses that of women in, in poor socioeconomic, socioeconomic communities because they can afford the new furniture and the new cars uh, where the outgassing is high and the exposure to these brominated flame retardants is, is actually fairly high. And I can see where with that sort of scenario, um, there could be some really significant impact on the thyroid. Absolutely. And one thing I'm thinking about when you mention that is is that so they got flame retardants with your upholstery and in your bed and yet the rest of the materials that are building your house the house can actually be burned down in about six minutes 
where an old house with traditional materials is going to take a good 20 minutes, even if it's, you know, really going. So that's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, they're using a lot more of that, you know, particle chipboard, which has the glues in it. And, and you're, you're right about that. So, you know, we're, we're in kind of like outgassing heaven. <laughs> Well, we are, and people are very, very sick, and some of those are things people don't want to hear about initially, how they really need to move, they need to get rid of their carpet, they need to replace it with something non-toxic, they need to get rid of their dry, clean clothes, I mean, it just goes on and on and on, but some of the things are fairly simple to start out with, you paint your house non-toxic paints, if you're washing your clothes non-toxic laundry detergents and all of those things are fairly easy to start making the switch and not hugely expensive. When you get into things like uh, getting rid of the carpets and replacing it with, with a good non-toxic floor, you're getting into thousands. But there are just so many things to think about in terms of getting healthy. And we like to think there's just one thing, we can fix it and boom. But often there's many, many things going together, many pieces to the puzzle. So Kayla, um, I know that there's lots of things in our environment. What can we do to prevent um, or heal ourselves of, of thyroid or hyperthyroidism? Yeah, some of the, the things that with the athletes, um, people talk about getting the BPA-free plastics, but they use something called BPH, which is probably just as bad. But I'm really happy to see in the stores, there's like a glass uh, water uh, bottle and plastic on the outside, so you're not going to break it. But glass uh, is what the water's touching. So that's really good, non-toxic. So just making some of those substitutions are really easy. And, you know, we have an old saying, you know, our grandparents always said it a lot. If you, if you want to get dry, get out of the rain. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is people are, are very focused on taking the supplements, taking the Armour Thyroid or the Westroid or the Nature Throid or some of those uh, products or even iodine. But we also have to pay attention to our whole environment and uh, switch out the, the non-toxic things as much as we possibly can. And in terms of the huge expensive products such as moving or um, doing some refurbishing of your house, uh, just start with a, a list, you know, and if you say do one thing every six months after a couple of years you've made huge improvements things like buying a used car that's less toxic without that new car smell some of the options can actually save you some money and then another thing diet wise soy soy is going to really box up your thyroid and so many athletes, it's don't don't forget bars. don't forget the flax don't forget the flax with there too. <laughs> okay, the flax is another big one, but you know there's a lot of people who are doing soy for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks, and then they, they might think flax is a health food too. And flax is high in phytoestrogens. It's a different type than in the soy, but it will all affect your reproductive system and your thyroid. So we got to be careful with some of these health foods. 
Yeah, well, and, and so the, 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 the crude Peter uh, version of this is if you're a guy, you're going to be less of a guy if you're eating a lot of soy and flax. <laughs> and if you're a girl, it just ruins the tatas. Um, Kayla, you want to speak about the thermomammographies? Um, I've seen some uh, stuff in the old bro science online. It's a little scary just what this, uh, you know, these plant phytoestrogens will do to uh, women's breasts and then also how it affects the thyroid and also the predisposition for breast cancer and other uh, female-related cancers. Yes, people have the idea that some of these plant-based estrogens are safe estrogens, low-dose estrogens, and they'll interfere with the mammalian estrogens that are considered more dangerous. But this is not true at all. You can still have estrogenic buildup Regardless, they can get into the estrogen receptor sites, the hormone receptor sites, and interfere with the utilization and the manufacture of the hormones you need. And, you know, just because they're from a plant doesn't mean they're healthy. So there's uh, three kinds of phytoestrogens that we need to be thinking about, and all three are often considered health foods. But beware, a little bit once in a while, not a problem for most of us, but soy has isoflavins, that's a type of phytoestrogen. Flax has lignans, another kind of phytoestrogen. And things like sprouts, you know, those big healthy salads with all the red clover and the alfalfa sprouts. Beware of those. They are very estrogenic with a form called cumestans. And a lot of people, they decide they're going to get healthy and their health actually tanks. And it's hard to believe what some people were, say, eating at McDonald's and then they start eating spinach salads and they're having oxalate problems and kidney stones. So some of this healthy stuff doesn't always work out the way we would hope. Yeah, no, um, this, is, this is a good point you bring up because... Um, you know, once again, when we talk about the human digestive tract, it's it's very limited, and, and where a ruminant has the bacterial population in the rumen to really break these things down in a way that their bodies can utilize them, and it's incidentally fat. Um, the human digestive system doesn't have that capacity, and and of course, it's a spectrum. Um, so some people are going to be able to do better than others, but others won't. Um, and the other thing to keep in context here, is, as Kayla mentioned, is that the occasional hit of this stuff um, isn't the end of the world in a healthy person. But if it's something you think is healthy and you're eating it all the time, um, you could be doing yourself some long-term uh, damage. Yeah, I always recommend people do a rich and varied diet. Uh, those people tend to not get into so much trouble. So just, just vary it. The people who think certain things are the silver bullets or the miracle food and eat them excessively, they tend to get into problems. And a lot of those people are the soy consumers. They're drinking a lot of soy milk. They're eating soy energy bars, soy shake powders, and they're thinking high protein, but they want plant-based. They're hearing what some of the so-called experts are saying, low fat, high protein, plant-based, and they come up with things like soy shakes. And there's nothing natural about this. And they're full of phytoestrogens and many many other problems let's get back to real food 
Yeah, now, and, and you know, things like miso soup and, and natto are actually, what, they're this, what you would call the safe soil? Is that what you term it? Sure, and you're not likely to eat them excessively. I mean, natto has got a very strong flavor and a slimy texture. A lot of people really despise it, but some people uh, are real aficionados of it. In Japan, there's a special room in the restaurant where they serve the stinky natto. You know, it's got a strong smell. Yeah, it's like stinky uh, cheese. <laughs> Yeah. And it's rich in, in K2, and it's not because of the, the vegetarian part of it, it's because the bacteria produce that vitamin K2. And that's something we really need. Uh, my preferred way to get my K2 is Pure Indian Foods ghee. It's very rich, it's delicious, and it's loaded with K2. I'm a, I'm a fresh liver fan for, for my K2, but it, it, there's all sorts of good sources, but the K2 has to come from either an animal or a bacterial source. Yeah, the natto is a great source if you love it, if you want to eat it. And you're not going to eat that excessively. And likewise, miso soup. Uh, you're going to use like a teaspoon or so in a cup or a small bowl of, of miso soup. And a lot of the misos are mixed with something else. They're mixed with soy and rice or soy and barley or soy and uh, chickpeas. Uh, many, many different options there. So small amount. And if it's the old fashioned kind of miso, it's been fermenting for months and that really improves the digestibility and the nutrition. Right. And doesn't, doesn't the fermentation process for say something like miso or, or, you know, like cheese, any cultured, cultured, quote unquote cultured. I love that term because it's really just rotten. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, with the, with the phytoestrogens in miso and so and natto, isn't that a lot of that mitigated through the fermentation process? I think the phytoestrogens are still pretty much there, but what the fermentation does is get rid of the phytates that interfere with mineral absorption and the trypsin inhibitors that interfere with protein digestion and gets rid of some of the oxalate content and some of the other anti-nutrients. And just keep in mind, there's small quantity of those that you're going to get when you're you're eating those old-fashioned soy products. The people that are getting in trouble with soy are the ones who are uh, eating the shakes and the soy milk. Soy milk's not the worst thing that's out there, but the people who drink it, they're drinking it sometimes several times a day. They think it's protecting their bones, but instead it's really harming their thyroids, which is not good for the bones, and so it goes. Okay, Kayla. So let's let's go and and do a little rundown on on some of, on some of the thyroid basics um, because you have a, a good working knowledge of this. So let's go through you know TSH, T3, T4. Um, talk about those and then and and in the context of the real world applications. Well, I'll get right to the real real-world applications because people are usually not testing adequately and they need to be looking at not just TSH and T4 and T3 but they also need to be looking at reverse T3 and they need to be looking at thyroid antibodies. So uh, that is something that they're often going to have to pay for out of pocket but we need to have numbers for all of those things. 
and we need to be looking at how they're related to each other and that's really coming down to how you really need to be working with a good alternative doctor who actually understands these issues. Yeah, well, and, and again, one of the things that's really key that unfortunately the, the modern medical industry um, hasn't taught doctors is it's very individualized and so when you're working with hormones and particularly thyroid hormones, it really is a very delicate balancing act. And it's not just looking in your book and looking at the prescription chart and putting, you know, like, like commonly I see a lot of women going on hormone replacement therapy where the doctor is just prescribing her the standard estrogen dose and maybe a little bit of progesterone and, and not really taking the full panel of, of thyroid hormones, sex hormones, uh, hormone precursors and really dialing it in for that individual. Right, and a sophisticated doctor who really understands all these interrelationships, um, it's worth traveling to find that kind of doctor. And there, there are some, uh, there's some information online, like Dr. Rin, Bruce Rin's website. He's got a lot of, you know, optimal versus normal discussion. And, you know, very briefly, what I would say is most doctors are looking at what normal is. Well, normal is average. Normal is all your sick friends and relatives. It's Amen. People on the street. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be normal. <laughs> Well, well, you certainly, you certainly yeah. aren't normal, <laughs> and, I, and I like it. So we want to be what would be optimal. Optimal is what we want. Right. And with with TSH, some doctors are considering it and normal to be anywhere from zero point five to five. And some doctors who know a little bit more are considering normal to be 0.3 to 3. <laughs> and uh, more, what you want your TSH is to be around 1.5. Yeah, and and it's, if it's much out of the line there, it's you've got a problem problem, probably. And, and yeah, and it's it's in the context because there's some interesting, you know, in the in the world of low carb, fat adaptation, ketogenic diets, there is some thoughts um, running around and it's it's highly individualized that a lot of your TSH and, and other thyroid hormones are going to tend trend lower just because you're taking some of the load off of having to deal with so much sugar. Um, but yeah. <clears throat> your comments? Uh, sure. And, you know, we're, we're uh, all of those things, they're pieces of the puzzle. And the more of those uh, pressures on the body and stresses on the body we can remove, the closer we're going to get to a, to a solution. And there's one thing that's kind of interesting, though. If you find you're extremely deficient in iodine and maybe have high bromide levels, you may go on iodine therapy and during the early stages of that therapy your TSH and some of the other lab work is going to go out of whack but it's part of that protocol and that may be something that's just one more reason to be working with a good alternative doctor or health practitioner you know we need a team to understand some of these complex issues yeah, and to talk about iodine and iodine uptake, because that's a tricky one, too, because too much iodine supplementation in the wrong form can be just as bad as too little. And then, of course, you're, you're bringing up the, the a very good point about how bromide 
competes with iodine. And so it's all in this context, and, and you really have to sort through a whole complicated mess to kind of figure out what the picture is for each individual. It is really, really tricky, and there's a lot of people who believe that uh, iodine can be a serious problem for people with autoimmune thyroid problems. There are other people who think they need iodine too, and they need it desperately, but I think we're getting back to how it's really important to be looking at the whole picture and working with people we trust. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things I have people do um if I want them to get iodine in terms of a trace minerals, I have them, you know, eat like dried seaweed or seaweed salad or up their intake of fresh seafood um, for both magnesium, iodine, and other trace minerals. And that seems to be a really good way because, when you know, when you find that iodine in that mix of food, it's gen you know, it's in that mix that we co-evolved to be able to absorb it. Yeah, if we're actually on iodine therapy the amount you would get in the seaweed is probably not going to be adequate. So we're going to want to be on Lugol's or Iodorol tablets or, or something like that instead. But it gets to be something where I think there's some risks with do-it-yourself. I mean, we all can say test through direct labs and look at a lot of the, the thyroid issues. We can do an iodine loading test. Uh, but we need to have somebody that we trust work with them to go through all of this because geez it gets complex and people have adrenal fatigue exhaustion uh, burnout and these all affect thyroid too and if you're not addressing all of these things sometimes in the right order you can be frustrated for a long time oh yeah yeah so Naomi are you there yes sorry yeah, yeah. I am no no we're we, we, we want you to come on and, and talk about it in the context of your own story because you um, had to go through a number of, uh, you know, you're still on that sort of journey of getting your thyroid um, either working or not working. And, and um, you know, it's good to have people on the show that, that people can relate to. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And there's so many questions, you know, in relation to... Um, like we don't have those sort of doctors around here, Kayla. So um, the doctors tend to just put you on um, thyroxine, which is like a synthetic um, thyroid tablet. Or um, my doctor I actually spoke to, he is can be alternative. So he sent me to um, a natural, um, natural, thyroid extract but I've still found that it's not um, it's not at the optimal level that I would like it to be and I can tell from day to day where it's at so um, and I'm on a low carb high fat diet I um, do look after myself I think I haven't looked at um, you know those those things in the household so what could a person that you know, is is on those sorts of things do in a regional area? Uh, we can order some tests ourselves and we could go to, a, to doctors and try to educate them. And I know that can be very frustrating. I mean, some are totally closed-minded. Others, once you really point it out, 
can can listen. Some of them actually do listen, and the more people bringing it to their attention, the better. Mm. And some of the thyroid sites and Hashimoto sites will recommend thyroid literate diets, uh, uh, doctors, and. There's, there's more resources than a few years back, but there's also a whole lot of self-help online too. And while we all need to be very proactive, it's very hard to keep track of, track of all of this. I mean, most people have a multitude of factors contributing. And of course, some of the things we can do ourselves, we can clean up our, our cleaning supplies, our laundry, our bedding. Uh, many of those factors we can very easily do ourselves and that should be a priority. It's, it's fairly easy to do a lot of that. And then we can uh, really address, say, soy in the diet. You realize it's not a health food, so we cut most of it out, for example. So some of those things are pretty easy and things we can definitely do on our own. Yeah. And then we find out about some of the, the testing options and what we need. And then we have to be very insistent with our doctor that TSH, T4, and T3 is not enough. We want reverse T3 and we want, we want the antibodies tests and we want to get an iodine loading test, which is different than the iodine blood test. And maybe we're going to have to pay for all of that out of pocket. And we need to be willing to do that because our health is very important. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. I think I think in the context of that, you know, like a lot of these nuggets you shared with us about how to how to really get some of these uh, pressures uh, off of us. I think if people do that first and then see what their body does, um, a lot of times it's it's really amazing just how the body can heal if you give it the right environment on its own. And then, you know, from there you start, you know, wait a while, then do the tests. And I think like in your case, Naomi, what I found fascinating is a couple of years ago when we first started working together, we got you well formulated and you were training for the Tour de Cure. And you were at, you know, when you got yourself in that physical fitness and fat adapted state, you were able actually to go off your thyroid meds and felt good until, of course, you got that blasto and then it was back to square one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so yeah. I've see, we've seen this happen a couple of times, Kayla, where we've had um, uh, the combination of, of, of fat adaptation. Um, so you get your body back to burning and metabolizing fat as fuel with uh, a lot of really good uh aerobic exercise in the right doses um, has gotten several people off their thyroid meds. Um, all of a sudden their thyroid decides to go back online. And, and um, but of course, like Naomi's trajectory has been very interesting because she got the blastocysts, which is a pretty serious parasite. And it just knocked her right back down to square one. So any comments, any thoughts on, on all this? Well, it's very interesting you're pointing that out because in my inbox today, I got a, a newsletter about how working out in any form, you know, it started as a teaser, which one's going to, which kind of workout's going to hurt your thyroid. And they offered up, you know, hot yoga and kettlebells and running and different things. And then, you know, they tease you to their website. And then the answer was all of those could fry your thyroid. 
And I'm thinking, well, um, I've read a little too much along those lines. And what my thought is, is people really need to be encouraged to consider all the other things that can, can harm your thyroid and also make sure you're, you're recuperating enough from the heavy exercise. Some people just seem to think, you know, the more the merrier that, you know, too much is not enough. And uh, perhaps if our adrenals are down and thyroid's down, working out, but also having plenty of time for rest, for fun, getting enough sleep, the right diet, all these things need to be part of part of the whole picture. Well, well I think a lot of that is because the, the conventional athletic model is based on a high carbohydrate diet. And that's, that's one of the things I really kind of like preach about and I do preach about it. It's, it's, it's not a question of if you're going to have a problem when you're burning that much glucose, it's when and what form. And, and what we've seen is, is when you get your body back to burning fat as your aerobic energy source, the way, you know, nature meant us to, that's why we carry the fat. It's a profound difference. But unfortunately, the context of, of that email you got is in that framework of all these people just literally burning sugar. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And when when you switch over to a paleo diet or even a ketogenic diet, people as part of doing that are going to eliminate a whole lot of the problems, the sugar problem, the gluten problem, um, many of the, the dietary sources that are harmful to the thyroid and adrenals and the whole body for that matter. Yeah. And I see that quite a bit as well, like in some of the athletes that I coach, Kayla, um, and myself, of course, where overtraining can definitely affect the thyroid and, um, and putting too much pressure on the body. So, you know, thinking going hard all the time or going long all the time will actually make them faster or better. So pulling them back from that and training smart instead of um, smashing your body every day and affecting it by, you know, thyroid or, or other hormones in your body. Um, yeah, it's definitely can cause those sorts of problems. Well, I, I, I work out, um, I do kettlebells several times a week and I've seen a lot of people there who are doing very, very well on, on a paleo or even a ketogenic diet and other people who are still struggling with the, with the sugars and so forth. But one thing I just wanted to mention, even as an aside, because we've done a separate segment on, on broth, but a lot of these people, if they're, not, if they're not incorporating bone broth in their diet, they're not getting all the bone building benefits they would hope for, and they may be having joint problems. So the bone broth is a very nourishing and soothing kind of food for a body. Uh, that's under physical or mental stress and the athletes really really need to do their bone broth Well, you got that right. It's interesting because a couple hours ago. I was on the phone with uh, Foxy Roxy Roxanne Woodhouse who's 53 years old and She's a fox. She's a fox. She's like you Kayla. She's not aging. <laughs> okay You're a fox too, too Naomi. Don't get me wrong, but you're you're for you're 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 40 and and not up there with with Kayla and Foxy Roxy yet, but you'll be there and you'll be hot. Yeah. So 
Um, anyway, you know, I, I came up with this concoction because she, she did the uh, Tahoe Rim Trail 100 miler on minimal training, won it in July, and then seven and a half weeks later, she did the Tahoe 200, 200 miles. And she busted her tendon up early on and, um, and so had to limp through it. It was suffer fest. And she said her metabolism was fine, but, but germane to your broth is I came up with a concoction when we were planning this out where she was doing chicken broth with rice, a little bit of white rice and coconut milk. And she said that works so well that she, you know, she really didn't want for much in between aid stations because that just went down easy. It absorbed quickly and it gave her everything she wanted. And, you know, and, and she won, she, she won the female title at the Tahoe 200, even though she was pretty injured for probably 175 of those 200 miles. It was a 205 mile run uh, hike. And yet she still was able to win the female championship. And she was in like, fourth or fifth place initially till she aggravated that tendon. So, um, you know, that's a pretty powerful testament to the, the power of broth. Yeah, definitely. So, okay. Um, any other, any other uh, things? I think we've had a really useful conversation today because Kayla, you brought up some of the real key points that I think a lot of people just aren't aware about with, uh, uh, how their thyroid gets affected by all this and, and we can take that to another level on another day but um, any closing thoughts well it's not all about the thyroid it's the whole body all the parts working together and of course thyroid affects everything yes it does yeah I couldn't agree more all right well superb all right. Well, thank you very much, Kayla, for another um, wonderful and, and uh, very useful uh, conversation and uh, looking forward to our next one on a number of topics. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Kayla. I look forward to it, too. <laughs> All right. Cool. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.